You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Let's begin with a statement of the obvious. Our beloved Lord and Master was unique. Not telling you anything you don't know there. The only begotten of the Father, the only sinless man in the history of the world, the only one through whom we can be redeemed and saved. And the way that he lived his life, apart from his sinlessness, was also unique, especially his last three and a half years. So wonderful, so faithful, so enlightening, so different from anything else. And you know, the record that we have in the four Gospels and other parts of Scripture, the Psalms especially, that that speak of him with such power and such beauty, these things, glorious though they are, are in fact only what we might term a potted history. We know that. The end of John's Gospel says this, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Let's think about that statement for a couple of moments. If if every single book in the whole world described the life of the Lord Jesus, could it do so? Could it do so? This is said to be the largest library in the world, the British Library in London. Those who know tell us that there are between 170 and 200 million books there. Now, if all of these books describe the three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus, couldn't they do so adequately? I believe so. But they would never, ever be able to do it justice. That's what John 21 is telling us. It doesn't matter how many books you have, none of them can truly describe the beauty and the power and the wonder of the life of Jesus adequately. That's how different he was. And we know that there are other things that took place in the life of the ministry, other miracles, amazing incidents which aren't recorded for us. We won't turn to John chapter 1, but if we did we would see there that Jesus said to Nathanael that he would see the angels of God ascending and descending upon him, Jesus. There's no record of that happening. Okay, there were angels in the life of the Lord, but there's no record of of what John chapter 1 speaks about happening for Nathanael to see it. It must have happened because Jesus said that it would. Once again, what we have here is a potted history. It's a condensed form. And yet, you know, these works are so closely packed, sometimes describing a very short time period, relatively speaking, that they sort of run one into another. And that's what we're going to think about today, God willing. One key time, arguably one key day, where the Lord Jesus performed amazing works. And these works were a lesson for Israel in his day, the leaders, the common people, his disciples especially. 
And they are absolutely full of lessons and warnings for you and me. So the three events that we're going to think about in our first study, the calming of the sea that we've just read about through Brother Luke. Number two, the healing of Legion. And finally, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and also the interaction with the healing with the woman with the issue of blood on the way. But, but did they all take place on the same day? Well, there is a hint that this could well be the case. Can we look, please, at Luke chapter 8? Whether this was literally a 24-hour period or whether it was longer, I, I don't suppose it really matters, but there is an indication here that this could well be the work of one day in the life of the Lord Jesus. So, verse 22 of Luke chapter 8 Now, it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. And that's the incident that we've just read of, the calming of the the storm on Galilee that we're going to think about in a few moments. Notice a certain day. The Greek is one day. This is a key moment. And it seems that this is the commencement of a number of amazing incidents, all within the same, the same very short time period, relatively speaking. So the storm is calm, which we'll look at in a couple of moments. Almost as soon as this happens, verse 26, they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, and we know what happens next. Legion is met, Legion's mind is calmed. And then we have the other events to do with the pigs and the Lord Jesus being sent away by the people of that region. But as soon as they arrive at the shore, legions out there meeting him. It's the same time period. As we know, of course, the people urge the Lord Jesus to leave and he does so. And he heads back across the Sea of Galilee. Where does he come to? Verse 40. And it came to pass when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, waiting for him. Who should be waiting for him? Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was spread over a number of days. But every indication is this takes place in the same relatively short time period, arguably one single day. What do we have? The raging seas are stilled. A madman is cured and he is taught and he's clothed and he's loved. And a woman's illness, utterly incurable by man and getting worse every single day, that is healed. And a dead child is raised. And if indeed this is the work of one day, then how astonishing are these things? How remarkable was our beloved Lord and Master to accomplish all this in this relatively short time period. If indeed it was one day, where do you think the mind of the Lord would have been? Maybe, maybe back in Genesis chapter 1, when at the end of each day everything was very good. Maybe in the Psalms, Psalm 118, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And he did. And so did the beneficiaries of his work. And brethren and sisters, so must 
we. So we begin then with the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The first key point here, of course, is that there are a great number of miracles which take place in Bible times in and around water. Here are just some of them. The flood, of course. Then we have the first plague, the Nile to blood. We have the crossing of the Red Sea. We have the crossing of the Jordan by the nation of Israel when they entered the land. We have the crossing of the Jordan by Elijah and Elisha there and back. And then we have Jonah and later still the master himself walking upon the water, which which demonstrates to us what? That the father and those with whom he is pleased to deal, those whom he blesses, his chosen and faithful servants... They are in control. Yes, a man of this world may well dam a river and redirect it. And that may be a good idea. And it may not. Men have done all sorts of crazy things, the result of which has been absolutely disastrous. Man may cause a river to dry up through his own stupidity, through global warming or whatever. But the father controls nature and he gave his son the power to do exactly the same thing. It is a simple fact of nature. I remember virtually nothing from my physics lessons at school. I didn't like the teacher and he didn't like me. Physics was like Greek. It's a statement of fact that water flows downwards. It finds its own level. It's what it does. It doesn't matter whether it's a waterfall or whether it's a meandering river. That is what water does. That's mortality for you. We only go down, but we are called to do something else. We are called to raise ourselves up to new heights. To seek the one who is above and glorify him. Only our Heavenly Father can reverse the laws of nature. Only he, through his Son, can bring up that which goes down. Only he can give life to dying creatures. And the calming of the Sea of Galilee is one of these awesome miracles that demonstrates that what man cannot do, what is utterly impossible with man, totally and utterly impossible, God can and does do. And and these are the lessons for the disciples of all ages. These are the lessons that, speaking personally, at times, just like the Twelve, I am very, very slow to see and to appreciate. Now, before we go any further and consider the miracle itself, I'm, I'm going to tell you quite openly that I would have been no good had I been in that ship on Galilee that night. You, you are looking at the person who was seasick on the Isle of Wight ferry, okay? So, okay, you're never going to find me out on some ocean-going liner. But the men that followed the Lord Jesus, we know that a number of them were very experienced. Mariners, weren't they? At least four of them, probably more. We know that Peter and John, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were certainly fishermen prior to their calling. It seems that there were others also. We won't look at John 21, 
But after the resurrection, Peter says, I'm going fishing. They all go with him. And amongst them, apart from James and John, we've got Thomas and we've got Nathaniel and two other unnamed disciples. So these men were hardened, experienced fishermen. They had, they had seen most things, I would suggest to you, out on the Sea of Galilee during their time. They'd known nights of prosperity and they'd had times, I rather imagine, when they caught virtually nothing. They must have experienced storms before. It was just an occupational hazard. But that night, that night, they witnessed something more intense than anything that had gone before. Their very lives were in danger. Only one man could help. And that's the Lord Jesus. Can we look please at the reading that Brother Luke did for us? Matthew chapter, sorry, Mark chapter 4. Mark 4.35, And the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent the multitude away, they took him, even as he was, in the ship, and there were, other, there were also with him other little ships. Across to the, the other side. So maybe somewhere like this, um, Gergesa, but certainly the, the, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Not, not a massive lake. There's many in the room that will have been there. If I'm going green with envy, please bear with me. Okay, but many have been there and they've seen the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's, not, it's not gigantic by any means. There on the other side, they're going to encounter a man, a representative man, but we'll come to him in our second talk. Now, now what do we make, first of all, of... Verse 36, they took him even as he was. Why is anybody... Sorry. Sorry, brother. Um, there are two cars that are blocking the other group who are using this facility. Um, so could, I don't know who they are, so I shall just read out the reg. Uh, WV15FZK. And the other one is uh, YG13DYC. <laughs> Sorry, if you could just uh, move your cars just for a moment, that's, uh, that's okay. Thank you very much. Sorry about this. Sorry, no problem. No problem at all. So, only one person stood up, though. Verse 36. They take him even as he was. Now, why is anybody taken anywhere? Often because the one in question is unable to make that journey alone. So parents will take a young child from place A to place B, often because of safety. There is a danger that the child can't comprehend, but mom or dad, they know. Or maybe there is a very elderly person who is taken from one place to another because alone he or she is too frail to make that journey. We don't know. Why would they take Jesus? Possibly because he was in a state of complete and utter exhaustion. And they are physically helping him into the boat and laying him down gently with his head on a pillow. They cover him up and he's going to get a few moments sleep. 
Now, if we looked at Matthew chapter 8, we would see, in fact, that the disciples followed him into the boats. There is clearly no contradiction here. I think what happened is they all went in, the disciples followed Jesus in, and then maybe the master was called back out for one last moment. And the disciples, desperate to protect him, go out and thank you very much. Please let us take him now. And they physically help our Lord and Master back into the vessel. Why was he so tired? Well, apart from the fact he'd been teaching and preaching and healing, any battle against the flesh is a wearisome thing. And for the Lord Jesus Christ, it never, ever stopped. Indeed, it would never stop until he would cry, it is finished. And it would be. And it would be. Verse 37 of our chapter. And there arose a great storm of wind. The waves beat into the ship so that it was now full or it was filling. Maybe not necessarily totally full, but the danger was there all the same. Now, a very simple Bible principle that I'm sure we are familiar with. That the nations of the world are represented by the seas. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, we read in Isaiah 57. And again, one of these fishermen, John himself, would be inspired to write these words, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. Why, why though, are the nations like the seas? Well, Destructive, certainly at times. Virtually uncontrollable by man, absolutely. Virtually unpredictable by man, yes. And yet they are controlled by Almighty God. Remember these words in Job 38. Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth? As if it had issued out of the womb and said, Hitherto shalt thou come but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. The answer is, Almighty God, and no other. Historians are unsure as to whether King Canute really was trying to push back the waves because he was so powerful. There are those that say, No, in fact, his subjects said to him, you are so powerful, O king. You know, if, if you were on the shore, the waves would go back. No, they wouldn't, he said. Don't talk such nonsense. I'll prove it. And got his feet wet. Now, we don't know which of those is true, but it's a simple statement of facts that only our heavenly father and those who are his can control the tides. Why? Because he rules in the kingdom of men. One final point regarding the seas. They wash grains of sand, don't they, up, but not all of them. Some are washed away back into the sea. Some remain out on the land. And we, according to the promises made to Abraham, are like those grains of sand. The sand on the seashore. Why? Because we are out of the seas by grace, standing apart from the things of this world and their standards and their morals and their laws we may have to abide by most of them. Brethren and sisters, they are not ours. 
Back to this event on Galilee, we, we could easily imagine, can't we, the terror of these disciples. The boat is starting to fill, to, to fill with water. A great storm. They'd seen storms before, not a storm like this. This was something else. It really was. And once a, a, a vessel starts to fill, you will know it's going to go down almost certainly. No wonder we read in Luke 8, they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. About to sink. No way back. And yet, brothers and sisters, they had been here before. Just keep a market in Mark chapter 4 and look please at Luke chapter 5. Now here we have the occasion when Jesus calls at least four of the disciples to be fishers of men. And, and look at what happens. Prior to their receiving this call and forsaking everything and following him, we have, of course, the great catch of fish. They'd fished all night, they'd caught nothing. Jesus says to Peter, cast the, the nets over the other side. Oh, I know that this won't work. And I don't want to see you publicly shamed, but if that's what you're asking me to do, then I will do it. Verse 6 of Luke chapter 5. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net break. They beckoned to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. They've been here before. And in due course, as we know, the catch was forsaken the very time. Naturally, when you want to be a fisherman, you've got this once-in-a-lifetime catch. They turn away and they follow the Lord Jesus. But prior to this, they had been fishermen there on Galilee, accustomed to storms. Here they find their boats sinking once again back in Mark 4. But they couldn't remember it had happened before and both of those boats had reached land. Slow of heart to remember all that the prophets had spoken. Yes, that's what the disciples were like then. And that's what disciples are like today at times. How many times have we faced situations and we've been in a dilemma like this before maybe? Does that make a difference to the way that we act? I can tell you openly, I am a terrible worrier. I know that it's a sin. But I still worry, and knowing that it's a sin, that really worries me, I can tell you. <laughs> I spend so long thinking over problems. What am I going to do? What should I say? I should do this. Should I go there? What should I do? Oh, dear. And invariably, these situations don't arise. I know what the Lord Jesus said. Take no thought for the morrow. Brethren and sisters, who, more than anybody else... Had, had things that he could think about but Jesus. Take no thought for the morrow, said the man who knew that three and a half years later he was going to be put to death in the most unimaginable way possible, mocked and whipped and spat on and stripped, and his friends would leave him. He'd be impaled to a tree and his life would ebb away, all the time knowing that he could, he could reverse it in a moment, calling on more than 12 legions of angels. Take 
no thought for the morrow. Are there storms that rage in our lives? Of course there are. Of course there are. There'd be something wrong if there were not. Because, brothers and sisters, we're not in the promised land yet. This is the wilderness. It's how we react to the storms. That's what shows our mettle. Many years ago, I was in sales and I was having a, a quiet week. Unusually, I, I wasn't a brilliant salesman, far from it, but we didn't have very many quiet weeks, but I was having a quiet week. And, and yes, I was having a good old worry. And I came out of this factory in the middle of Birmingham, not a very salubrious area, um, and I parked up and I was sitting in the car doing what I usually do, worrying. What will happen if? Where will we do? What will we do then? And I looked and I saw this little bird swoop down and pick up a bit of food and fly away. And I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Behold, the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Now, was Jesus simply saying, look, I feed the animals... Will I not therefore feed you? Yes, indeed, but there's far more to it than that. If you've still got a marker in chapter 4 of Mark, come back there, please. Look at what the fowls of the air represent. And this is just one of a couple of parables that demonstrate the same point. The start of Mark 4, the parable of the sower, verse 3, there went out a sower to sow. Mark chapter 4 and verse 4 and it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Who are the fowls of the air? The people of the world. Can you see what the Lord Jesus is saying? Look, he feeds the people around you, your neighbours, your work colleagues. They don't even believe that he exists. Do you not think that God will feed and care for you also? The answer is, yes, indeed, he will. And, and when... The waves sometimes wash over into the, the ecclesial vessel, which, which, of course, they do at times. Let us carry on in faith. Let us bail out, where necessary, the water and keep going, know that, that we're, knowing that we'll never be left or forsaken. Come back to our incident then in Mark 4, verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus himself was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master... Carest thou not that we perish? Now, we all say things that we shouldn't in moments of great danger or pressure. But notice what they say here. Two things. Number one, we're going to die. And number two, what's more, you don't care. And brethren and sisters, they were wrong on both counts, were they not? They were wrong on both counts. Number one, they were not going to die. And secondly, he cared more than any other man has ever cared for his friends in the history of the world. He cared so much. He was going to die for them. And notice, and this was a point a brother made many years ago that I've never forgotten. What was it that woke the Lord Jesus? It wasn't the wind and the waves. It, it wasn't the nations of the world. It was the voice of his concerned 
disciples. Where do we find similar things in in the Old Testament? So we're thinking about water and God's people, and they are crying out because they are about to die. Well, what about Exodus 17? The people thirsted there for water. The people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Different problem here. Not enough water. But the same principle nonetheless. Now, we would, we would never say such things, would we? The kind of things that the nation of Israel said here, or even the kind of things the disciples said to the Lord. We, we'd, we'd never say that, would we? But sometimes by our actions, by our thoughts, we can deny the truth that we profess to love. So a brother or sister has offended. Well, I'm, I'm never going to the meeting again while he's there. I'll never set foot in, in, in that hall while she's a member. If, if we, we truly believe that the master could be here this coming Monday, 48 hours, would anything, anything keep us away from the meeting tomorrow? It wouldn't, would it? Of course, one man in a ship, asleep during a storm, which then would be calmed miraculously, takes us back to Jonah. We won't, we won't look at the prophet Jonah, but we know the record well. The Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 12, even stated that Jonah was a type in his own way. Not because Jonah was a, a rebellious and, and, and uh, a prophet who nonetheless loved Israel but refused to do God's bidding. Far from it. But because Jonah was three days and three nights in that place of death, which, wherein he may or may not have died, we don't know. So Jesus would be three days and three nights in the tomb. But this storm would be calmed not by throwing Jesus overboard. That's what happened in the case of Jonah, wasn't it? That could never be the case here because the wind and the waves, the nations of the world would never envelop Jesus. They would never conquer him and never quench his spirits. How was the storm calmed? By a word. By a word. The word made flesh. Again, keep a finger in Mark chapter 4 and come please to Psalm 89, please. Psalm 89, a couple of Psalms. Psalm 89, and, and again... Do you think that Jesus would have expounded verses like this to the disciples, if not immediately afterwards, but in due course? Verse 9, thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. That's what he did. That's what Jesus did. He ruled the raging of the sea in a point of forward to the work that he will yet do when he comes again. And while we're in the Psalms, Psalm 107, please. Psalm 107 contains refrains. I'm sure you would have seen these. So we have 
One statement, uh, so it begins, then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered or saved them, bringeth them out their distresses, uh, which, is, which is followed up by the second part of the refrain, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, his wonderful works to the children of men. And, and that phrase, or those phrases appear in verses 6 and 8, 13 and 15, 19 and 21, 28 and 31. I know I'm rattling through these. If anybody wants the slides emailing after, afterwards, please come and tell me. I'm very, very happy to send them to you. Notice the last of, of these refrains. Psalm 107, verse 23. So in what circumstances do people cry unto Yahweh? And what circumstances should they praise him? Verse 23, they that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And, and are, are their wits end? Doesn't that describe the disciples there on Galilee? This way and that way. What do we do? At our wits end, Luke says, in jeopardy. Where do we go from here? They cry to God. Well, they did, in a way. They cry to God. And, and you know, there is, a, there is a, a brutal truth about these words that not even an unbeliever would question. What's the old saying? You never find an atheist in a lifeboat. It's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. People cry to God in times of despair, even if they have never, ever done so on any other occasion. I used to work with a gentleman years ago. He was a communist and he was an atheist. And he said to me, Jonathan, I've only ever prayed once in my life. I said, when was that, Al? He said... FA Cup semi-final, 1972. Birmingham City were losing 1-0 to Leeds. He said, I prayed at half-time. He said, I prayed to God that day. I said, what happened? He said, Birmingham lost 3-0. I've never prayed again. That is what some people are like. What's the lesson for you and me, brethren and sisters? Let, let's not leave it until it is too late before we appeal to the Father for his blessing and his guidance and his protection. That's what the world does. Let us ask in faith. Let's ask for a sign if necessary. And go forward, knowing that our Heavenly Father will bless and care for his children. And, and I've written four names in my margin by the side of verse 27 there. Save from the waves. Jonah. Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and the man that was then known as Dr. John Thomas. He wasn't Brother Thomas then, was he? Since 1583, it is said by those who know, there have been over 350 recorded shipwrecks on Sable Island, where the ship on which John Thomas found himself ran aground and you read the account of what happened that day it's so utterly unlikely that that boat survived but it did 
One, one female passenger was crying, we'll go to the bottom, at which point John Thomas says, we were already at the bottom, and he was right, he was right. But he prayed to God, and God heard him, and God blessed him. And unlike promises that may be made in a moment of great danger by some in the world outside, as we know, for John Thomas, that really meant something. He sought out the truth, and in due course, he was baptised. Come back to Mark chapter 4 then, and verse 39. What, what kind of a storm was it? We saw that, didn't we, in verse 37? A great storm. Now, now, verse 39, Jesus arose, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And if we're looking for connections with Jonah, there is your key word. Everywhere in Jonah, you find things that are great. Things that are larger than normal, a great city, a great wind, a great tempest, a great fish. Jesus didn't simply calm the storm. He silenced it with a word. Same word as in Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel says to Zacharias, Behold, thou shalt be dumb. Same word, peace. There will be peace. You'll not be able to speak until the day that these things be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And how appropriate that when John the Baptist was asked who he is, who are you? Are you that prophet? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm the voice. His father had been struck dumb. He was the voice. And again, are we not back in Exodus? The Lord shall fight for you. Ye shall hold your peace. Silence. Verse 40 of our chapter. Jesus said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Can you not sense the exasperation in the voice of our beloved master? Their fear had overcome their faith. The one had defeated the other. And you know, faith and, faith and fear, they, they cannot dwell together, can they? Fear defeated their faith. Contrast that with Moses. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. There's the lesson. There's, there's the challenge. For you and me. Oh that we might be more like him. Because his faith was all consuming. We have to bring our thoughts to a close. In Revelation 15 please. I'm sure that you would be. Anticipating a visit to this chapter. Well the time has come. One day. The raging of the seas. The nations that move back and forth. Overflowing into other lands, and we've seen that recently, haven't we? And, and, and all the tragedy and the sadness that that brings. One day these things will be no more. Revelation 31, uh, so Revelation 15, verse 2, sorry. And, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, 
And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now, naturally speaking, there are anomalies here, aren't there? A sea of glass. Seas are fluid. They cannot be glass unless they are frozen, at which point they're ice. But a sea can never be truly like glass. It can be still, but you know very well. If you throw a stone, it's no longer glass-like. Secondly, a sea cannot be mingled with fire. So if a burning ship sinks, well, very, very quickly, the flames are overcome, aren't they? And finally, men cannot walk on water. It's, It's just an impossibility. We've noted this already, but not here. In a simple and, and beautiful and powerful image of what is yet to come. The fires of judgment will rage upon this earth. Yes, indeed. But Christ and the saints will do in symbol what he was able to do in reality back on the seas of Galilee. Calming the raging storms and dominating Notice verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. We're we're back once again, are we not, in Exodus and that great miracle that took place at the Red Sea. And again, verse 1 mentions plagues. Once more, we're back in Exodus. But those plagues that took place, those, those plagues... That, that inflicts upon men and women now such terrible misery that there will come a time when they will be no more. It's the time that we long and hope for and pray for. And if only we can look away from the things of this world, as we should, and look forward with, with unquestioning and unflinching faith to the glory that he will bring, then we will be with him as kings and priests of the age to come, ruling a peaceful earth in in righteousness and holiness, with the nations totally submissive to us. Thank you. Illness, to a greater or lesser extent, is just part and parcel of everyday life, isn't it? I once met a brother who told me that he had never had a headache. I suggest to you that that is unusual. I don't doubt his words for a second. I'm sure he had all sorts of other aches and pains. He wasn't exempt from this aspect of mortality. Nowadays, there are illnesses which can be cured, which in previous years, of course, would have been fatal. But it's hardly surprising that without the the methods of modern medicine and treatment that doctors have at their disposal today, when somebody came along who could cure anyone instantaneously and completely free of charge, 
it is hardly surprising that that man in question, the Lord Jesus Christ, was absolutely swamped by people longing for what he could give. Jesus encountered all sorts of ill and, and dying people and conquered all sorts of disease and infirmity, but even he must have been just a little bit taken aback one day when a madman came to him, one who had made his graves, his, his home amongst the graves, one who was too strong to be bound by, by any man-made chain, who spent his days crying out, naked, cutting himself with stones. But that man, Legion, that man was to be the recipient of the healing hands and the calming words of the Son of the living God. And as with any who came into contact with the Lord Jesus, his life was changed. Nobody else could help. Only one man could. And the life of our beloved Lord and Master touched him. Before we look in any detail at, at Legion and the work of the Lord Jesus here, I believe that here we have a hint as to what this is all about. Legion represents all humanity. All cry out, all suffer, all are heading in one direction unless they come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone can calm us. He alone can heal us. Through him alone we can be saved. And you know there are, there are two key incidents in the lead up to this miracle which help us in, in comprehending the magnitude of what took place that day. The first one, prior to entering the ship, Jesus met with three men and, and discussed with, with all of them the concept of, of following. Bear with me. Lost without modern technology. Three men, and he talked to all of them about following. And to one of them, he said this, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. This, this man who wanted to bury his father, who may or may not have been dead already, because we know that they buried people very quickly in, in that climate. So maybe he was just ill. And one day soon, I'll be able to follow you. Let, let me wait until he, he no longer needs me. Follow me, says Jesus. Or, or you are as dead as the man you want to bury, who may already have died. You're, you're as dead as a dead person already while you live. And it's no coincidence that the very next incident... The very next individual identified as coming into contact with the Lord Jesus is this man, Legion, who made his home amongst the graves, who, who lived in a way which was bound to result in his death sooner or later, or indeed the death of others. And the second one, we've seen it already, Mark 4, end of verse 41, the disciples asked the question, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. That question is answered by a madman. Verse 7 of chapter 5. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Yes, he could see what they struggled to comprehend. What manner of man is this? One who is able to calm a storm 
and not just a literal storm. He can calm the insane mind of a madman. You just imagine, Legion, if you will, standing on the shore, there amongst the graves. He sees this amazing storm arise, and in an instant it dies down. Complete and utter calm. Maybe he even looked up and he saw the Lord Jesus there in the boats. You know, wherever Jesus went, news about him spread. Even, even in the days without modern technology, word of mouth would have been far more effective. And yes, there would have been exaggeration, but everybody was talking about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. There were those that had seen him work, they'd seen miracles, they'd heard him speak, and his, his words were relayed. What did some say about him? Come to chapter 3 of Mark, and verse 22. Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he saith unto them, Sorry, he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Some said he had a demon. Some said he was mad. You just imagine Legion, perhaps, hearing this, either prior to his imprisonment or afterwards as he moved amongst the people of his day, lurking in the shadows, catching just a little bit of gossip. Even the insane man knew that Jesus was special. So when he saw this massive storm calmed, in an instant he put two and two together. He knew that this was the Son of God. And maybe he, he thought, maybe he knew verses like this from the Old Testament scriptures, which stillest the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people, they that also that dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth are afraid at thy tokens. He saw Jesus still the waves, and he knew that he could still his mind. He was fearful. He, he longed for that calming influence in the uttermost parts, the other side of the sea, in the Gentile land. Here is a man that can calm my mind. And so we come back to our chapter then, please. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, they come to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, what do we make of this? Matthew's record says the Gergesenes, which Strong's Concordance connects with the Gergesites, who, of course, were some of the original inhabitants of the land. Most, most maps have Gadara on the eastern coast of, um, of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere around about there. We, we don't really know, but that seems to be the area from which Legion had come. Later, he sent to Decapolis the ten cities. Here we have a man whose mind is deranged, different directions, different voices. Jesus sends him to ten cities with one message. This is what God has done for me through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we piece together the, the different gospel records, we see all sorts of different, oh, there we are, possibly Gergesa, possibly Gadara. We can't be too sure. Nonetheless, different gospel records provide 
various different pieces of information for us. So in actual fact in Matthew, which we won't look at, but there are two men. We don't need to be concerned about this, brethren and sisters. It's the same in the case of, of Bartimaeus. Matthew speaks of two blind men, Mark and Luke, only one. There's no contradiction. There were two men who benefited, but Mark's record has chosen to focus in only on the one who was the one who had most interaction with the Lord Jesus. Matthew says, exceeding fierce. Here's the flesh for you, exceeding fierce. Luke 8, 27, he wore no clothes. Again, put that one on the back burner, we'll see it in a second. Pick up the record in Mark 5 and verse 3. What else are we told about him? We're told he had his dwelling among the tombs. No man could bind him, no, not with chains. He'd been often bound with fetters and chains. The chains had been plucked asunder by him. The fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. It's a terrible picture, isn't it, of what this man was going through. I'm suggesting to you, here we have a symbol for the world as a whole, people in the world. There were two men. You often find people in groups, grouped together with those that think the same way, family or friends or work colleagues or whatever. He is a fierce man, legion. Only God's word can calm a troubled mind like this. He's naked. Without Jesus, we, we put on Jesus in baptism. Without that, we are truly in a state of nakedness, are we not? Like Adam and Eve. Or like the young man who ran away when the linen cloth was snatched from him when the master was arrested. That is our natural state. Clothed in Jesus. Clothed now in a garment of salvation, awaiting a greater garment. That tabernacle which is from heaven, which will be clothed upon by grace when the master comes. We find him surrounded by things of death. And without being too gruesome, that's what we find outside, brethren and sisters. You do not find things of life out there in the world. It is one massive grave. Once we were bound... In bondage to sin and death. And notice, these chains couldn't control him. He may well have snapped the literal chains. He was still bound, brethren and sisters. He needed that freedom that Jesus Christ alone could give. Where do we find him? Verse 5, in the mountains and in the tombs. So different locations here. That's not the only places where we find legion. We're told um, he was driven by the devil in Luke 8 into the wilderness. So here we've got a man with no direction. He's in the cities, he's down by the seashore, he's up in the mountains, he's out in the wilderness. He's desperate for some peace and he cannot find it. A man without direction, a man of the world. Chained up because people were fearful, fearful of what he could do to them or their children or maybe even their livestock. And, and we live, we live in a world of fear, do we not? We don't, we don't face madmen like Legion, most of us, I imagine, on a daily basis. 
people who want to kill us, people who are a real danger to our very existence. But we do face things in the world that if we allow them to do so, can, can squeeze the spiritual life out of us. Simple example. It's getting worse. A simple example. One, let's say a brother 30 years ago had a, had a problem with gambling. As long as he steered well clear of, of a bookie shop and he chose not to go to a casino, he was probably fairly safe. But not now. It's absolutely everywhere and it's completely and utterly unavoidable. And un- unlike other addictions, there is no limit to what this particular addiction can do because a man who is an alcoholic, well, he is restricted by his body's ability to take that alcohol in. Sooner or later, he's he's going to fall over or pass out or even die. But with betting, the bets just get bigger and bigger. And those who are touched by this tell us how hard this is to escape. The madness of this world creeping in and it's just a bit of fun this is what we're told just a bit of fun go on why don't you many years ago we had a, a brother who used to come and speak at cyc and he said when they come round the office at work selling lottery tickets no no thanks ever so much he said i i don't do gambling i don't i don't agree with getting something for nothing he said look i tell you what look there's the pound which is the ticket fine rip that up put across there in the you know on the side there we are so you know what's happened he said they never asked me again there we are that is the answer let's do what we can to steer clear of the madness of this world and and let's all be conscious of the weaknesses that may affect others but don't affect us what what for you is an absolute behemoth of a problem for me is nothing whatsoever and vice versa let's be sensitive and let's be honest with ourselves because how easy it is to deceive now one final point before we move on notice how Legion spent his, his days there in verse 5. He's, he's crying out. Why is he crying out? Because he's cutting himself with stones. He's a madman. It's what you would expect somebody whose mind is seriously deranged to do. So somebody who is put in some kind of asylum because of serious mental instability will not have anything that's particularly sharp or dangerous because of what they could do. Where else do we find this? We won't go back there, but in 1 Kings 18, we find the prophets of Baal doing exactly the same thing, cutting themselves with knives, desperate to try to get Baal to respond to their entreaties. Oh, Baal, hear us. doesn't work. Well, we have to cut ourselves then. And the blood gushed out. Legion had an excuse, brethren and sisters. He was insane. They didn't. They didn't. They were just sinful men, content to worship the pagan idols of their age and indeed to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season there sitting at Jezebel's table. Verse 6 of our chapter. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now only Mark's gospel record tells us this. He sees Jesus afar off. He runs to meet him 
and he worships. Why? Well, as we noted already, he's seen the storm calmed. Same day, almost certainly. Depending on where in the boat Jesus was, he may even have recognised this man as Jesus of Nazareth. And he knew that he could calm his troubled mind. So we have an acceptance of power, we have a desire for blessing, and, and we have haste. Just come back, please, to Exodus 34. Keep a, a finger in Mark, if you would. And we know the record well. Here we have the Father passing by and the, the Yahweh name being expounded. Not, not simply declared, but expounded. So, verse 6. Yahweh passed by before him, proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, Ale. And, and there are all sorts of things that could then be said about our gracious Heavenly Father. His creative power. His unchangeable nature, what is the one point which is emphasised time and time again? It is grace. So, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. How appropriate that this declaration should be made at this time when the nation of Israel, just a very short time before, in Moses' absence, had made a molten calf, a golden calf, and danced round it naked. What does Moses do upon hearing this? Verse 8, Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He ran and he worshipped like legion. And in such a situation, doubtless, we would do the same. And clearly there is an exhortation for us in these things. There's often a need for haste, for urgency. How can I put it? Nobody is going to amble aimlessly into the kingdom of God. Back to Mark chapter 5. Let's pick up the record once again in verse 7. We've seen what he cries. Jesus, the son of the most high God. Back in Daniel, maybe. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Verse 8. For he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now, we're not going to think in any detail about demon possession today. That's not our subject. Just one key point. What was Legion's state after the work of the Lord Jesus had been seen in his life? Verse 15, he was in his right mind, which proves that prior to that, he was not. He was an insane man. He wasn't possessed by some minor evil deity. Such a thing is an impossibility. Nonetheless, here we have the, the effect that the illness had upon this man. M maybe his mental illness had been brought about by a particularly sinful lifestyle. That can be the case even to this very day. Those that have taken illegal drugs, their brains are scambled. Somebody who, who drinks to excess, he destroys his liver. And, and Legion knew here he is before this one who would calm the storms. Here he is before God's only begotten son. Perhaps he had concluded that a man who was 
as holy as Jesus was, had come to destroy him. I am so bad and you are so good. Please, don't use the power that you have to wipe me out. It's not what Jesus was there for, is it? The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And few have been so in need of the loving touch and the kind words and the the calming influence of Jesus as this man was. Verse 9, he asked him, what is thy name? He answered him saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now there aren't many occasions in scripture where somebody says to somebody else, what is your name? That this one that this took my mind back to where the angel says to Jacob, what's your name? Tells him his name, thy name shall be no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and men and hast prevailed. And Jacob's mind was very troubled at that time, wasn't he? He was about to meet Esau. Maybe not like Legion, he, he, he wasn't mad, but he was most certainly exceedingly distressed. Concerned like Legion, I'm about to die. I'm going to meet this man who's coming to meet me with this massive army. And, you know, everything that God could have done for Jacob that day, naturally speaking, to make things easy, he didn't do. If you were in Jacob's position that day, what would you have asked for? What what about an army twice the size of Esau's? That would have been good. Or what about supreme strength like Samson? Abnormally strong and agile. He He could have defeated Esau's army easily. Or what about the Holy Spirit picking up Jacob's entire family and transporting them somewhere else? That happened elsewhere in Scripture, didn't it? Men were moved from one place to the next. What did God do? He sent an angel to wrestle with him all night, so he was absolutely exhausted. He was completely and utterly wiped out emotionally, and as if that's not enough, he handicaps him. He touches his hip, and he handicaps him, and then says, you go and meet your brother. You go and meet your brother. In this state of complete and utter weakness. Why? Because you are now going in my strength, says God. That's why. You're going in my strength, because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's what you're about to do. Now, Jacob was renamed. Do you think Jesus renamed Legion? Absolutely right. We're not even going to get into what he might have called him. It doesn't matter. But clearly he would have renamed him, because that old name represented his former way of life. And as Jesus renamed Simon, called him Peter, and James and John, Boanerges, sons of thunder so too he would most certainly have have renamed this man. Previously, he held this belief, Legion, that there was a a multitude of demons within his brain. And as we saw, he spent time in various different places. He roamed. He he was longing for, for some solace, and he could not find it. And once again, I say to you, this is a man representative of the people of the world. Within the kingdom of men, we find many nations and regions, languages, races, religions, political views, moral standards, 
different attitudes to the people of God, both natural and spiritual. There, there is no unity. There is a, a legion of different ways of thinking in the world outside. And we have to be very careful, as we are told, that they are all equally acceptable. There's nothing that's right or wrong anymore. Ever since Babel, there has never really been unity in the world. Now, what about you and me? What about the ecclesia, brothers and sisters? Will there be minor differences over trivialities within ecclesial life? Not only there, there will be, there should be. Absolutely. You show me, we're a family, are we not? You show me any family where everybody agrees on everything all of the time. My word, that's abnormal. Exceedingly abnormal. Sometimes the more trivial the issue, the more people fight. Within ecclesial life, let's have our differences over trivialities. But regarding major issues, doctrinal matters, moral issues, we have to be one. Legion's mind was divided, as if he was being pulled in many different directions. Afterwards, that wasn't the case. Come please to Ephesians chapter 4. What does God want of us? Verse 3, we've got to endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. Verse 4, there is... One body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Here's the oneness that we should be enjoying that in Christ, that which is truly beautiful and wonderful. And I used to when I was in my days, when I was in industry, I would, I would say to people, you know, that the, the friendship and the fellowship and love that we can share as a community is so special. I was chatting with a work colleague. She said, I probably know two or maybe three people who I would really trust. I said, I probably know 500. I would trust my life with. And it's glorious. Notice what follows. This oneness that, that Legion would have enjoyed afterwards, which had been restricted previously. Verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Jesus departed, but he gave gifts and he led captivity captive. Jesus departed from Legion, but he gave him a gift before he did. And that captivity which had been his prior to this, chained up, bound by the madness that, that dominated his everyday life. That was taken away through the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to Mark 5 then, and verse 11. Now there was nigh unto the mountain a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out, entered into the swine, and the herd, herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. 
Now, now we know, of course, that pigs were unclean under the law. If these people were Gergeshite in, in ancestry, they were Gentiles, therefore they were in a Gentile region, they would have no problem in keeping these animals and, and then in eating the meat. But clearly this, this man held a belief that was common in the time that devils, demons could possess an individual, go out and go into somebody else. You know, the reaction of the pigs after this incident, running down the hill, down the cliff face, into the sea, just demonstrates that this was mental instability. No, no animals do this, lemmings accepted, but they don't do this, pigs don't do this normally. There are a, a number of Old Testament connections. Let me take you firstly to Isaiah 65, please. And here we have the nation in Isaiah's day, and we'll notice in many respects, unchanged till the days of the Lord Jesus. Okay, they, they didn't worship idols anymore. They committed sins that were far worse, rejecting the Son of God, but still. Isaiah 65, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, Israel, in Isaiah's day, Israel, in Christ's day. A rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good, after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. That was the situation in the days of the prophets. And in the days of the Lord Jesus, the leaders were like this in their own way. They, they, maybe they didn't have their own altars that they, which they burnt incense in the wrong place and in the wrong way. But they were far, far worse. Verse 4, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. And the leaders could say, well, we're not like that at all. We don't ever eat pork. We wouldn't dream of doing so. But rejecting the Lord Jesus is a far more serious sin. But here's Legion, I believe, eating swine's flesh, attacking those animals, probably eating that meat raw. And we know, don't we, that, that certain meats, unless they're cooked very carefully, all sorts of illnesses can follow. Verse 7, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have Burned incense upon the mountains, blaspheme me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. There's Legion in the mountains, down by the shore, desperate for some solace, and he could not find it. Sitting amongst the graves, eating swine's flesh, and only Jesus Christ can solve this problem. Now come to Micah, please, Micah chapter 7. Micah 7 and verse 7. Therefore I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do you think that's legion there? 
waiting for God's salvation. Jesus, the salvation of Yah, I've been waiting for this day, says Legion. Only he can help me. And in due course, that's exactly what he did. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be confounded as all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. Isn't that what Legion did? This man of the nations, perhaps, who comes to Jesus, please don't destroy me. Verse 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnants of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Cast my sins out there, says Legion. And that's what happened. Of course, we have these three Bible words for wrongdoing, iniquity, transgression and sin. All these things in symbol were cast away from Legion when he was brought before the Lord Jesus. Like the swine, the symbols of Gentile practices. No more Legion, you are now one of the people of God. Back to Mark chapter 5. And we notice that Legion, who is now clothed and in his right mind, in verse 15, he is sitting. Can we not picture that man whose life had been turmoil prior to this, totally calm, cross-legged, sitting before Jesus, looking up, drinking in these words of life. Come back to chapter 3. We went there earlier, didn't we? We noticed how there were those that were saying that Jesus had had a demon, he had a mental instability, perhaps he's possessed, and Legion may have heard of these words. Verse 31, then there came then his brethren, Christ's brethren, and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them that sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, The same is my brother and my sister and mother. Struggle with that passage if you put Mary on a pedestal, but still, that's that's really another subject. But, But the point is this. Previously, Legion had been on the outside. Now he's on the inside, sitting before the Lord Jesus Christ. Sitting there like Mary in Luke 10, or the 5,000 that were fed in John 6, or the multitude upon the mounts in chapters 5 through to 7 of Matthew. Back to our chapter, verse 16. Mark 5, verse 16. And they that saw it told them how it befell of him that was possessed of the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. End of verse 15, they were afraid. Isn't this truly astonishing? Is it not one of the greatest tragedies in the ministry of the Lord Jesus? People were so scared before that they chained Legion up. He was a threat to every one of them. Jesus heals him and they're still afraid. This time 
of Jesus and they ask him to depart. And this might seem a, a trivial point, but you know, anybody in this world who is regarded as different is, is a threat. Those who respond to the truth are often regarded as a threat. Certainly those who, who teach them the truth, very much so. But here we have Legion sitting at the feet of our beloved Lord and Master. No longer a threat, now in his right mind. What amazing lessons there are for us in these things. Verse 19, he wanted to be with Jesus. Isn't that the most logical thing in the world? And, and is not this our plea? Verse 19, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends. Tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. He went out and he manifested the glory of God. He shows what God had done for him. Isn't this what we should do? Should we not manifest forth God's glory so that those round about see the hope that is within us? Somebody once said, always preach the word. If necessary, use words. Absolutely right. What amazing things we have here in this chapter it commences with a man who nobody was able to help. A danger to himself and a danger to everybody else. He's wild. He's like some vicious beast. Calmed. Calmed by Jesus Christ. Loved by Jesus Christ. Healed by Jesus Christ. One day, we hope and pray very soon, the madness of this world will come to an end. The savagery of, of the mind of man will be stilled. I'd like to leave you with a final thought, if I may. Picture, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ in that boat. He's going back now across the Sea of Galilee, and there he's going to encounter Jairus and Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. But he's there in the boat, and, and perhaps he's looking back to the shore, and there stands the man formerly known as Legion, waving perhaps with, with tears in his eyes and, and crying out, Thank you, Master. Thank you for all you've done for me. The others didn't want to know, did they? Only a faithful remnant was saved that day. All sorts of people could have responded to the words of the Lord Jesus, but only one man did, the man formerly known as Legion. And how often do we see that principle in Scripture? Nonetheless, as the, as the ship passed through the waters that day, what was all around that boat? Pigs and dead ones at that. All around us are people dead in trespasses and sins. People unaware of the truth or unwilling to respond to the truth that they hear. Just occasionally, just occasionally, there will be a man like Legion waiting on the shore, 
longing to be plucked from the seas by fishers of men. The challenge is very clear for every one of us. Let's let our light shine before men so that when the time comes, when we encounter one searching for the truth, and that might only happen once in a lifetime, that that individual light legion will be able to know what we know, to love what we love, and to sit in symbol at the feet of the master, being recipients of the mercy of God, clothed with Jesus Christ through baptism, and waiting in faith for his glorious return. Well, is there, is there any greater miracle, really? Any more wonderful declaration of, of the power of God at work in people's lives? Resurrection, a, a restoration of life to somebody who had died, shows without question that God exists and is a promise to all who come to him that they can and they will likewise be blessed. But surely nobody would deny it. It's impossible to deny. Well, they did in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. When there was no other way, they took de desperate steps to try to prove that it didn't really happen at all. So Lazarus was raised from the dead. No question about that. Everybody knew that he'd been dead and, you know, it wasn't just 10 minutes. It was a number of days Many came from Jerusalem, they saw the evidence, and it could not be denied. At which point, what was it that the leaders of the Jews decided to do? The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. These men were dead in trespasses and sins. And they wanted to drag Lazarus down to their level. And it was the same when the master was raised. They, they couldn't find a dead body to prove that the claims of his followers were untrue. What would they therefore do? Well, they bribed the guards to say that they knew what happened, despite the fact they'd been asleep right throughout the whole process, which, of course, is utterly farcical. The folly of this shines through. What are we being shown? That life is God's gift. He has the power to give it. He has the power to restore it. And there is nothing man can do to negate this. And we see this, in fact, back in Egypt, in, in the Exodus, that the first few miracles, plagues, turning of a, of a a rod into a serpent and back again, and, and the river into blood. You know, the quack Egyptian magicians, they could replicate somehow. We don't know how, but they could do that. But there did come a point where they said, this is way above our field of expertise. We cannot do this. What could they not do? 
The answer is, they couldn't bring life from the dust. They could not. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Bringing life from the ground is the father's prerogative. Only he can do it. And though they were certainly symbolic resurrections in Old Testament times, we think of Israel out of Egypt, we think of Israel out of Babylon, somehow it it seems appropriate that there are three recorded Old Testament resurrections as there are three recorded resurrections during the life of the Lord Jesus. There were more, but three are recorded for us. So in Old Testament times, we have one through the hands of Elijah, the widow of Zarephath's son, one through the hands of Elisha, the son of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. And then we have that most unusual of resurrections, really the most strange incident, where a dead body is cast into Elisha's tomb, touches his corpse and comes back to life again. Three Old Testament resurrections, all of them within that relatively short space of time. There may have been more, but but these are the ones that Scripture has preserved a record of. And then we have three recorded gospel resurrections. So, the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7, Lazarus we've mentioned already, John 11, and the one that we're going to think about today in Mark chapter 5, Jairus's daughter. But there certainly were others. We won't turn to Matthew 11, but that's the occasion where John the Baptist has sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, art thou he that should come or look we for another? And Jesus says, go back and tell John what you've seen. And he lists all these things, these miracles that he's done. And one of them is the raising of the dead. So there were other gospel resurrections, many of them probably. And as with So many of these astonishing incidents in the life of the Lord Jesus, these were a challenge for Israel. They were a challenge for the leaders of the people. Respond to me or you are still dead, he was saying. And they're a challenge for you and me as well. You know, these are the lessons for us from these things. So, will you come to life? In me is the challenge. Will you raise yourself up to new heights? Will you see me as the resurrection and the life? I say gospel resurrections, of course, there was the raising of the master and then others that rose at the same time. But during his ministry, there were only three recorded. But these are the questions for us as we consider this most important of subjects. What do we know about the hero then of of today's study, our final study, this man Jairus. So verse 22 of Mark chapter 5, Jesus has come back. Behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, notice the desperation on the part of this man. He fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. Jairus' name means enlightener, and we might say that here is a very enlightened man, conscious that there is only one solution to this problem. Only Jesus can help, 
And he's willing to acknowledge it. He doesn't care who sees it. His other fellow rulers of the synagogue, I don't care now. All I want is for this man to come and help me and my family. And he was a ruler of a synagogue. We're going to see in a couple of moments where that may well have been. And the building might have looked something like that. It would have been a position of some authority and privilege within the nation. And here, as we've noticed... He bows before Jesus, acknowledging openly that he can help. He may not always have acknowledged this quite so readily. Where was he, the ruler of this synagogue? Well, immediately after the healing of Legion, in Matthew's record, we read this. Jesus entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And on first glance, we might presume his own city is Nazareth. It's not, because he had left Nazareth, I think, possibly to distract attention from his, his natural family that he didn't want to suffer because of the enemies that he was making. Brother Daniel, can I help you? You look like... Sorry, you, no, not at all, no. I, It's all right, now I could tell that somebody was uh, in, in need. So Jesus has left Nazareth, possibly to distract attention away from his biological family. And he's gone to Capernaum. This is his own city. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, and this was the base for the Lord Jesus while he was working in the north. Now, Capernaum, good place, bad place. The answer is, quite simply, one of the worst cities in the history of the world ever. You want to know how bad Capernaum was? This is, this is modern-day Capernaum, and you know, it's quite a tourist attraction for, for obvious reasons, the place where Jesus once called home. This is the reason why Capernaum was bad. Thou, Capernaum, says Jesus, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum, you are so evil, you make Sodom and Gomorrah look good. Now, why is that? Why was this one city so bad? Because Jesus was there for so very long. And we're told in that record, in Matthew 11, that in Capernaum and the surrounding cities, most of his mighty works were done. Now, it's assumed that throughout the ministry of Jesus, he performed 5,000 miracles. We don't know, but that's just a figure. 4,000 of them were in Capernaum and the surrounding cities, and still they didn't respond. That's what kind of a place it was. And here, in this city, Jairus was the ruler, or one of the rulers, of the synagogue. But, but what had happened in that synagogue? What had Jairus or his fellow rulers seen, and what had they been party to? Come back to Mark chapter 1, please. Mark 
Mark 1 and verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And that the following verses show us how the master healed a man with an unclean spirit. Did Jairus see this? Almost certainly. Even if he didn't see this, he'd be made aware of it. He knew that this had happened. Chapter 2 and verse 1, here we are again. Again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house, almost certainly the synagogue, and we know what happened in Mark chapter 2. We have a paralysed man who was let down on a bed through a hole in the roof, probably of the synagogue, which is a drastic thing to make a hole in a synagogue roof, but they did it, and they lowered this man down, and this man was healed and he was forgiven. How dare Jesus say this, say the leaders? This isn't allowed. But just to demonstrate that this is quite legitimate. You are healed, you are forgiven, pick up your bed and off you go. And he does just that. Again, a judgment on the leaders of the nation. You are, you are lying still. Just get up and do something. Chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. Sorry, verse 1. He entered again into the synagogue, same synagogue, almost certainly Capernaum. There was a man there with a withered hand. They watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they ha might have to accuse him. And Jesus did it. He healed him on the Sabbath day. And one of the other records quotes Isaiah and talks about the Gentiles being recipients of the blessings of God. And I think there that the withered hand is a symbol of the Gentiles being made whole, like the Jews, and able to enjoy Israel's hope. Verse 6, the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how they might destroy him. And once again... We have to ask the question, was Jairus there? Was he one of those watching to see whether Jesus would heal this man? Did he maintain his opposition? Did he want to see Jesus destroyed? If he did, then in time he would most certainly have had to have changed his ways. What then would this man have seen or at the very least heard about? Number one, a man with an unclean spirit who had been healed there in the synagogue. Number two, a paralysed man who had been healed and forgiven. Number three, a man with a withered hand whose hand had been made whole. And as if that's not enough, there's another one as well. I won't ask you to turn here, but if we did so, we would see that again it is prior to the events in Mark chapter 5 in Luke 7. Jesus ended these sayings, entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And we know what came next. Jesus healed this servant or son from a distance. Such was the man's faith, greater than anybody in Israel. It's almost as though he's saying, far, far greater than the leaders, far greater than those that ruled there in Capernaum, far greater than Jairus. Now just imagine the mindset of this man, Jairus, around this time. All that 
all that resistance to Jesus, all that hatred, everything that he'd, he'd thought of previously regarding this man was slowly, slowly being chipped away. Time and again, he was shown, a little like that other leader of the Jews, Nicodemus, that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, that this power that he possessed was real. There's no doubt about it. This is the Messiah. And just imagine this man, if you will, chatting perhaps to other family members, chatting to his wife over that intervening period. You know, you know, he'd say, that Jesus of Nazareth, I, I, used, to be, I used to be certain that he was a fake, but I've seen these miracles. I've, I've never seen anything like it. He can, he can heal a man from a distance. He can heal diseases that no doctor, not the greatest of our doctors, can even get near to healing. And maybe just a short time after that, that one person that he loved more than anybody else in the history of the world was stricken. His own beloved child, his 12-year-old daughter. Could doctors help? They probably tried. They were totally and utterly powerless. Maybe he prayed, I'm sure that he did. But again, just imagine that conversation that could have taken place in the Jairus household. She's getting weaker, says his wife. She won't last much longer. What can we do? There's only one thing we can do, says the husband. I must bow before Jesus of Nazareth. That one who previously I would not accept. The one that I wanted to see destroyed. He alone can help. I've seen the power that he has. I'm going to beg his mercy and his assistance. And that, of course, is exactly what he did. Jesus is heading back across the Sea of Galilee, maybe from this general area, back towards Capernaum, back towards the place which had been his hometown and which was the hometown of Jairus. But, of course, during this time, during the illness of that child, the master is nowhere to be found. He's the other side of the lake. Will he ever come back? You can almost imagine the desperation of the family waiting for Jesus to return. And then they see a boat making its way across. Imagine the joy of Jairus when this happens, when he looks up and, and sees that it's Jesus. No, little wonder. He fell at his feet. We can perceive the joy we can perceive the desperation, can we not? What a lesson for us, brethren and sisters, in these things. Before we even think about what Jesus did for this child or for that other woman. Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus in joy. If we were called to stand before our beloved master, would we fall at his feet in joy? Or would there be terror in our hearts? Regret that we'd allowed the world into our lives so much. I, I don't know about you, I have crazy dreams. And I've dreamt a number of times that the kingdom has come. And on one occasion, my father-in-law, lovely, lovely brother who fell asleep many years ago, he came to get me in my dream. And he said to me, the master's come. And I said, oh, that's wonderful news. And he said, 
Not for you, it's not. <gasps> I, I have never been more glad to wake up, I can tell you that. It, it will be a reality one day. However we are called, we will stand before our Lord and our Master. What's he going to say to you? And what's he going to say to me? Back to verse five, to um, Mark chapter 5. We, we see that the girl here is at the point of death. Rotherham's literal translation says, at her last, Young's literal, at her last extremity. You can see what we're being told here. Perhaps a little bit like the, the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Half dead. This girl is about to die. We have not a second to spare. So Jesus, as we know, sets off for Jairus' house. But we know what happened on the way. He met another woman in desperate need of his care and his love. A woman with an issue of blood. Some have suggested that this woman, in fact, was the wife of Jairus. Uh, the mother of the dying girl. I have to acknowledge openly, I struggle with that suggestion for the simple reason that the Bible doesn't say it. I think that we would be told if this was indeed the case, because then we have the family united together in this beautiful time of healing. Whether, whether there was any connection or not, we can actually find some astonishing similarities and, and connecting points between these two miracles. Firstly, the same language is used, healed, no great surprise there, but, but made whole, it's the same word in the Greek in verse 23 and, and 34. It's also the same word used of the work of the Lord Jesus in saving his people. So the angel says to Joseph, she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Same word. So in the, in the work of the Lord Jesus here in saving these people, making them whole, we're thinking about his work and how we are the recipients by grace. The privileges that are ours and they are truly immense. There are other connections as well. So the same Word is used in relation to the time scale. It's, it's, a, it's a mark word, isn't it, that we read time and time again. Straightway, forthwith, anon, immediately. Here we see that the master was a man of action. And he knew that he had to do this quickly. And he did. The girl was 12 years old, verse 42. The woman had suffered for 12 years, verse 25. And very probably the issue of blood, it is suggested, was as a result of childbirth. And that's one of the reasons why people like to think that perhaps she was the mother. This, this one is my favourite. The ailments are connected. The master's work here, brethren and sisters, truly astonishing, reminds us of salvation for Israel in Egypt. And what Jesus could do as the greater than Moses. Look at this. What do we know about Jairus' daughter? She was beloved, she was dying, and she was his only child. We won't turn to Luke's record, but in Luke chapter 8 we read this. For he, Jairus, had one 
only daughter, about 12 years of age, she lay a dying. And I think that means that he had one child who was female, not four sons and one, one girl. I think one child only who happened to be female. Now, statement of the obvious, if this is the case, she was therefore his firstborn child. So we have a firstborn child on the point of death, about to die, who is then raised. And we have a woman with an issue of blood. Look at verse 29. This woman touches Jesus' clothes and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. End of verse 34. Go in peace. Behold of thy plague. Can you see what we are being told here? A woman with an issue of blood and a firstborn dying child. In Egypt, the first plague was turning the river to blood. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. Here, Jesus reverses both. As the prophet likened to Moses, greater than Moses. He reverses both. A reversal of those plagues in Egypt. Now, what do we make of this woman? She most certainly had faith. There's no question about it. She knew in her heart that the master could heal her. So she says, verse 28, and I think it, she kept on saying, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. I know it can happen. Here is my saviour, she says. Just a touch of his clothes and I will be better. But she tried to come secretly, didn't she? Trying to hide her light under a bushel. We, we cannot respond to the truth without anybody knowing. There has to be some outward demonstration of our faith. And that, of course, was the lesson that Jesus emphasised to Nicodemus as he came to him, lurking in the shadows, fearful lest any of his fellow leaders should see. Ultimately, Nicodemus nailed his flag to the mass, didn't he, and declared his acceptance of who Jesus was. Nonetheless, we see that initially she comes from behind to touch his garments. Ultimately, when called to do so, she comes before him and tells him all the truth. He knew the truth anyway. Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was in the heart of man. But she had to demonstrate this before everybody. And again, what a challenge for you and me, brethren and sisters. What a lesson for us when we are in the world. Do we let people know what we believe? Do our work colleagues, our Next door neighbours, do they know what we stand for? I heard about a sister who, many years ago, knocked on the door, went to the door, complete and utter stranger stood there. Are you Mrs. So-and-so, asked the stranger. And the sister says, yes, yes, that's me. Are you the lady that reads the Bible with your children? Yes. She said, you don't know me. My daughter is in your daughter's class at school. I live just round the corner. She said, my husband has left me and I just don't know who to turn to. I need somebody I can trust. Can I talk to you? Uh, just a simple example of, of letting your light shine before men. 
Here's another one. I was chatting with a couple some time ago, a brother and sister in Christ, and um, the brother came from a very big family in the truth in the Birmingham area. I used to know a number of his family members, and we were chatting about them. And I said to the sister, were your family um, in the truth as well? She said, well, um, no, they, they came in from outside. I said, oh, how was that? Through a work colleague. She said, dad, dad saw somebody giving thanks for his lunch and asked him what he believed. Isn't that absolutely beautiful? I, I, I don't know either of the brothers in question. I don't imagine it was a 90-second Christadelphian prayer rammed with good old-fashioned cliches, you know, those on their beds of sickness and that kind of thing. It was just five seconds of silent prayer with a head bowed, and that was it. The seed was sown. Let's, let's let our light shine. This is a dark world. And the light of the gospel is needed now more than ever before. And maybe there is just one other looking for something. They don't even know it yet. But the Father will call them if we let our light shine. Why did the woman touch his garments? Well, we know, of course, under the law that garments had to have a border of blue. It's there in Numbers 15 to remind them of God's word. I don't think for a second that that's what this woman touched. She would have needed to have been right on the ground to touch that, and she just would have been trampled. I think she just reached out and just just touched any part of the garment of the Lord Jesus. And that was enough. And that was enough. And doesn't that take us back to Ruth chapter 3, where she said to, to, to Boaz, spread your skirt. It's the same word as wings in chapter 1 of Ruth. You've come under the wings of the God of Israel. And she said, spread your wings over me. I want to be saved. And she was this great ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially Zechariah chapter 8. We won't, we won't turn there. And although the the genders are wrong and the numbers are wrong and, and these are Gentiles and not Jews. But look at this. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Isn't that exactly what that woman did? She reached out and she took hold of the extremity of the clothing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And another one, Malachi chapter 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Isn't that what Jesus did for that woman? With healing in his wings, he shall grow, up, grow forth and, and grow up as calves of the stall. Well, As we know, the woman having been healed in the intervening period, the child died and the news reaches Jesus. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. An exhortation for their day, an exhortation for our day. Don't be afraid, the Greek is phobio, from which of course we get our English word phobia, only believe. Verse 38, and he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. Professional mourners, 
as if it isn't bad enough that we've got this great multitude of people wailing. And I don't think that they were genuine, but still. More than that, Matthew 9 tells us that there were minstrels there as well. There would have been an absolute cacophony of noise. At which point, Jesus says, she's not really dead. We notice that they wailed. They, they wailed greatly. Do you know how that same Greek word, it's only used on one other occasion in the New Testament, and it's in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, where Paul speaks of a tinkling symbol. This, this mindless sound, it doesn't mean anything. You're supposed to be mourning the loss of a child. I say once again, I think they were probably professional mourners. They were, they were paid to be there. Were they genuine? Was there any love? Was it just a racket? Verse 39. When he was coming, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Yes, they, they dared to laugh at our Lord and Master. When he had put them all out, he taketh the father and mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entered in where the damsel was lying. As in the temple, that which was unclean had to be removed, driven out. He didn't have to make a, a scourge of small cords like he did in the temple and drive out animals, but the principle is the same nonetheless. They had to go. The unclean had to be out before this girl could be restored to life once again. And yet they're dared to laugh at him. Many of us, I'm sure, have been in a similar position when, when talking about our beliefs. An easy target, really. The standards that we hold now are, are more out of step with the world outside than ever before. Ever before. How many of us in a similar position, possessing the power that Jesus did, would have been strong enough to say, you laugh at me, all right, then you come and watch this. But he didn't. He put them out and then he performed a miracle in fulfilment of a prophecy in Isaiah, which we'll look at in a couple of moments, God willing. But you just imagine those mourners who had left that house roaring with laughter as our Lord over the coming days. And somebody says, you know that girl, you know she's alive. No, no, she was dead. I promise you, she's, there she is. And you see her walking down the street. What would they have thought? Let us, let us hope desperately that one or two of them sought out our beloved master and bowed before him and begged his forgiveness for what they had done. They mocked him to scorn. This isn't the last time Jesus would endure this. It would happen when he was upon the cross. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. And they shake the head. Nonetheless, look at the expression that's used. Verse 34, sorry, 41 of, of Mark chapter 5, where we're told, And he, Jesus, took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Now that word rendered Talitha is believed to be of, of Chaldean origin. Literally, it means fresh as in young, 
And many years ago, one of my favourite speakers of all time, Brother Alan Harvey, was speaking at Bible school on this very subject. And he connected this with the idea of a lamb and suggested that as Jesus took this girl's hand, he said, my little lamb, and raised her to life again. How can we not think of Jesus, the true Passover lamb, given that we in his house and through his blood, by grace, might not perish with the unbelievers, but that by grace we might be raised to life. So the resurrection took place. Jesus took her by the hand and raised her to life. Can we look please at Isaiah chapter 42? One of the beautiful servant songs of Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I've put my spirit upon him. He should bring judgment to the Gentiles. And that will happen in due course. And of course, Gentiles were the beneficiaries of his work, especially after his ascension. But look at verse 2. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He put them all out. That resurrection wasn't, wasn't a visible thing for everybody to see. In the case of Lazarus, that was different, but not here. He put them all out. He didn't cry or lift up his, his voice to be heard in the street. This was just for the family and for his disciples. Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Holding thine hand. It's almost as though in symbol the father is, is holding the son's hand. He reaches out and holds the girl. And the girl is raised to life once again. Verse 7. To open the blind eyes. To bring out the prisoners from the prison. Them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. There is no more powerful prison house than the grave. And from that grave this child came. Verse 9. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Yes, new life sprang forth in Capernaum that day through the one who Jairus had desired at one point to see destroyed. Come back to the end of, of Mark chapter 5, please. Just notice how this section concludes. Mark 5, verse 42. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with great astonishment. Great astonishment, ecstasis. Our English word, ecstasy, of course. They were in a state of ecstasy. Their child had been restored. And one day... We hope and pray very soon that all-consuming ecstasy for the people of God is going to be seen in the earth once again. That all-encompassing joy when the Lord of life comes. Oh, brethren and sisters, may he be very, very near. What have we seen today? 
we've seen in one relatively short time period, really, arguably just a 24-hour period, we've seen Jesus calm a storm with just a few words. We've seen him heal a madman who was a terror to everybody. We've seen him cure a woman who was beyond the reach of the medical profession. Only getting worse, that's, that's mortality for you, isn't it? Only goes downhill. Spent all she has. She's ill, she's getting worse, and she's poverty-stricken. And she comes to Jesus who helps her. And we've seen him raise a dead girl to life once again. And they're all highly significant. And they're all symbolic of something far, far greater. You see, one day, one day, all storms will be calmed. No more will the nations rage and roar. No more will nations like Russia flow into Ukraine, leaving behind them a trail of destruction and death. One day... The minds of all men and women will be purified, no, no longer confused and scrambled by the politics and the thinking of this world. Jesus will be here and God's word will go forth. One day, illnesses which mankind cannot heal will be no more. Just think of the kingdom age and how glorious it will be with a race of immortal beings, you and me by grace, able to save the children of the poor and needy. One day, the greatest foe of all, the last enemy, even death, will be conquered. Because death will be swallowed up in victory. Why is this relevant, significant, that there appears to be one key day? Well, we won't go to Hebrews 3 and 4, but if we did, what is the exhortation that we would see time and time again? Serve today chapter 3 verse 7 today if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts verse 13 serve while it is called today verse 15 again today if you will hear his voice don't be like Israel in the wilderness chapter 4 verse 7 today after such a long time today here we have it again if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the wilderness. Serve me today is the cry from Jesus Christ for every one of us. And you will be able to serve me in the day which is yet to dawn, that new day of righteousness, holiness and peace. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, 
Most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.